celebrate the Lord's table. Does everyone have the elements? Anybody need one? Okay, no hands, so I guess we're good. Okay, <clears throat> celebration of the Lord's table is always a blessed time. I think it's a time that we uh, function like priests. We've been looking at the priesthood of, uh, according to the Aaronic priesthood, under the Mosaic law on Wednesday nights. And we haven't got yet to the offerings, but the offerings are amazing pictures of what the priests were uh, called to do and what the plan of God is. As we know, they would go into, first of all, they would meet the person making the offering at the bronze altar. And there that bronze altar is a picture of propitiation, the satisfaction of the righteousness and justice of God. After that was done, before a priest went into the holy place, they went to the bronze laver and it was made of polished brass hand mirrors and they would look at themselves in the water and determine did they need to wash their hands and always they did that's like us we are sinners and we are saved by grace but we still have problems in that area so we need to do an evaluation of ourselves on a consistent basis then the priest would go into the holy place there they would change out the 12 loaves that were pictures of the uh, tribes of Israel. They would trim the wicks of the lampstand, fill it back up so it never went out. And then they would go offer incense on the altar of incense. The 12 loaves are pictures of the bread that came down out of heaven, which is Jesus Christ himself. The lampstand is Jesus, is the light of the world. And the altar of incense is the fact that he is the great high priest on heaven's throne and he's the one that connected the dots between time and eternity. Whenever the, whenever it was uh, uh, time for, for, for the cross to be done, then that veil in the temple ripped in half. And I, it's uh, amazing because what was on the inside of that? It was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a picture of Messiah, uh, not just something to fill in the blanks on a Raiders of the Lost Ark movie. It had a very significant and important uh, function because everybody may not have been able to see the Ark because only the high priest could go in once a year, but everybody knew what was inside. It was a Ark that was made of wood and overlaid with gold. And inside of that were two tablets of the law because wood and gold is a picture of the hypostatic union of Christ being God, fully God and fully man. On the inside of that, the two tablets of the law, Jesus kept the law. He kept the law and he paid for those that broke the law. They also find the pot of manna. The bread that came down out of heaven and Aaron's rod that budded saying, I am the resurrection and the life. So we get a picture, amazing picture in the tabernacle of what, what went on. But the priest was to stop and take a look at himself. And that's what we're to do. This is a ritual. It's not going to save anybody. Rituals can't save. But it is an amazing picture of the one that did save us, his person and his work. And so that's why we're told to keep on doing this in, re in remembrance of him. We are told also that the sacrifices done by the Levitical priest, <clears throat> the first one was a burnt offering which pictured propitiation of the righteousness and justice of the Father. Because he is grace and mercy, but somebody had to pay for sin. 
And the Messiah would do that. The second one is a grain offering, is what they call it. The Hebrew is minka. Minka means gift. So it is a gift offering. It is a picture of the perfection of the sacrifice that had to be offered. And the last one is the peace offering, pointing out the manward side of salvation, the reconciliation of God and man, accomplished by, once again, Messiah, by an innocent sacrifice, paying the sins for somebody else. The two that were required offerings is the sin and trespass offering for known sins and unknown sins. Now that's important to us because some of these sins we do we know about. And yet others maybe we become so familiar with they just slip past us. But we are called to confess our sins and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that means pay attention. Pay attention to what we're doing. Pay attention to how we're doing it. Is it sinful? Confess it. But keep on moving through our Christian life. So the Lord's table is designed to say stop and take a look at yourself before you partake. Are there any things that you need to change? And you can't change them in the next few seconds or minutes. But is it something you need to do? And have you made any progress in the Christian life since the last time you did this? And I think that's so very important because we're all supposed to keep on growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Keep on doing that. And if we become stagnant, if we head it in the other direction, if we're going to try to maintain the status quo, we need to have our fires lit once again. The Lord will not extinguish a smoldering wick. So if we seem like it seems like our fires have gone out, we need to ask the Lord to kindle afresh the gift of God that is inside of us so that we may be his servants. We also focus on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the main point of the Lord's table. It looks back at what he did on the cross and it looks forward to his coming back. And it certainly appears that it took the place of all the feast. The Lord's table has the same meaning as the feast had the spring feast, which was the first advent. It had the day of Pentecost, 50 days later, which was a changing of the law, a recognition of the dispensation you're in. And then the fall feast, there was a picture of him coming back and defeating all of his enemies. And so what does the Lord's table do? It reminds us that he's been here. He accomplished what he came to accomplish. And one day he's coming back. And so that's, that's what the Lord's table is about. So before we begin, it says don't partake in an unworthy manner. The first and most important thing is are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? That's where it starts. Because unbelievers don't need to partake of this. It's a ritual, it's a little piece of bread and a little piece of juice, but it's not to be viewed lightly or irreverently, not at all, because of what it portrays, not because of what these are, but because of what they portray. So believers in Jesus Christ, first and foremost, how do you become a believer? Well, John 3.16 says that, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Two promises there. Will not perish but have everlasting life. But the condition 
is believe in the Son. So do you believe that he died for your sins? That he was buried, he rose again on the third day? That's the crux of the gospel. Told that very clearly. Some people think they can get saved by following other religions and that all roads lead to heaven. And that really just doesn't work that way, does it? There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12. So the scripture tells us clearly, salvation is all about the person and work of the God-man, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, dwelt among us, lived a perfect life, and took our place on a cross. There's no formulas for salvation. Just tell the Father in your own words that that is, that you're putting your trust in Him. Because you've heard the gospel. You're putting your trust in Him, and He will know that. And at that moment in time, you'll become a new creation. You might not realize it, but that's what happens. You will realize it eventually. For believers, if there's anything we need to confess or or, uh, decide to change or whatever... We go in front of the throne of grace to find grace and mercy to help in time of need. Confessing any sins if we need to. And deciding that, you know, until we partake of this thing the next time, we want progress in our Christian life. That's what we want. That's the proper way to partake of the Lord's table. So let's take this time for prayer for ourselves to get ourselves ready to partake of the Lord's table. Let's pray. Father, we're so amazingly blessed that your son would come, pay a debt we could not pay. And Father, that whosoever believes in him, you made it a simple act of faith because it is a function of your grace and mercy. And Father, we will be amazed at that that plan for all of eternity. But Father, I pray that we'll have a new level of appreciation today as we come together and think about what our Lord did to take our place on a cross. So, Father, we pray that you will sanctify and nourish our souls with this portion of of, uh, your word that is related to this, this communion with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The bread, if you want to go ahead and take that out is a picture of his perfect person. Now, the bread, a little piece of unleavened bread. The unleavened bread, because in Scripture, leaven connotes evil. But there was no evil in Christ. He was born of a virgin. But that, to me, is that's a miracle in and of itself. No doubt about it, because that's not the normal way things have done. But God has been in the business of miracles for a long time. That's that's what he does. We think of parting the Red Sea. We think of an extra amount of daylight so Joshua could complete the battle. We think of turning the, uh, multiplying the loaves and the fishes so he could feed everybody. But what amazes me is that he lived his life perfectly without sin. Now, he did that even while being wrongly accused. He committed no sin. And it said, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. So what he said was absolutely true. And what was amazing is that he confronted, he confronted that which was wrong, but he did it with absolute grace. Now, do we need to learn from that? 
I'm reading a book by Dr. Bruce Bumgartner, a good friend, pastor down in Houston, Call Forgiveness. Beautiful book. Uh, and it is a, a book that talks about what he did for us. We're called to forgive as Christ forgave. Now, can you imagine being spit on, mocked, called everything in the book, accused of being demon-possessed, and this by your own people? People that should have known better. People that claimed to know the Bible but didn't know it well enough to identify their Messiah. And it says in 1 Peter 2, yet without sin. Now, to me, that's what is so amazing because had he sinned, he wouldn't have been qualified to go to the cross. But he who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf. So that we could become the righteousness of God in him. He paid a debt we couldn't pay. He bought our ticket to heaven is what it amounts to. But he had to be perfect in order to do that. He couldn't be controlled by the sin nature. He couldn't be bound by the sin of Adam. Everything had to be done differently, but still he had to go through this life as true humanity, as a perfect human being, and stay that way. And that's what he did. And that's that amazing picture wrapped up in this little chunk of bread. I'm the bread, he said, that came down out of heaven. Your father ate that bread in the wilderness and they died. But you can partake of me and never die. Do you believe that he is who he says he is? He said before Abraham came into existence, I am. I am the I am. The Lord in the flesh. That's who I am. Do you believe that? That's the test question that he asked. So this is a reminder that when the Lord came, he was born perfect, he lived perfect, and he actually died perfect. So that we could become the righteousness of God in him. So we're going to take just a second. As is our custom. To think about the Lord's perfect person. You can think about a miracle. Think about healing the blind man. Think about healing the lame man. Think about, think about all the healings that he did. Or think about the feeding of the 5,000. But think about the man, Jesus Christ, for just a second. And please hold the bread and we'll all partake again together. George, would you bless the bread for us, sir? <clears throat> He took the bread and he broke it. So this is my body that is broken for you. Keep on doing this in remembrance of me. Let us eat. Wasn't a lot of time to think about his perfect life, was there? And hopefully you might leave here going, I wanted to think about that a little bit more. And then you take your time at at your home or out for a walk or whatever and think about the man Jesus Christ. I used to walk every night uh, back when I could and part of that time, all of that time, was spent in communion with the Lord in prayer and it was a blessed time to be able to get out and do that and to think about him and what he did and all the blessings he's poured out upon us because 
The worries of this world, it says, and the deceitfulness of riches will choke the word in the parable of the sower. So we have to constantly beware and be careful of that. His work is portrayed in this little bit of juice, this cup. Now, as we start thinking about his work, it takes us to thinking about his trials. Thinking about what he went through, the battles that he went through, the unrighteousness that he faced. Now, how would we do if someone was leveling false accusations at us? And they couldn't even find two witnesses that would agree. What about if someone was breaking every law in the books on the judiciary in order to bring in order to bring us to trial at night, which was totally against the law of the Jews? How would we handle those things? We wouldn't, wouldn't we cry out, "This is so unfair"? But how did the Lord handle it? He handled it with grace, and He handled it with truth. And then they beat him. If you've seen the Passion of the Christ, it, it's probably a pretty good depiction of what happened. And because that's the way that the scourgings were done. Many people didn't make it to the cross that were condemned to the cross because they couldn't survive the scourging. And yet he survived the scourging, carrying his own cross until a man was pressed into service to help him. And he took that cross they, and he laid it down his life. He said, I lay down my life willingly. But he would also said, nobody takes my life from me. Now what if you were God and man and as God you knew full well what you were getting ready to face? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the death, it's not as bad if you don't know you're walking through it. But he knew exactly what he was walking through. And he says, I lay my life down willingly. He was nailed to the cross. The cross was put in the ground. For three hours, for three hours, people like you and I passed by and mocked him. He was challenged. He was tested by every way imaginable. If you be Messiah, come down off that cross. Then we'll believe. But he couldn't come down off the cross and then be saved. So he stayed there. It's said that the justice of God put him there, but the love of Christ kept him there. Because he was still true humanity, and he was still deity. But then the sky went dark. I think it's another time. Did the heavens just stop? Some say it was an eclipse, and they tie everything to an eclipse, but eclipses don't last long. They certainly don't last three hours. But it was three hours of darkness with him crying out my God my God why have you forsaken me I think in part because of the answers us he had us in mind on the cross and then he said one word tetelestai <clears throat> in the Greek it's an accounting term it means basically paid in full it has been finished finished totally completely what the payment for sin. By who? The Redeemer. The Redeemer that Job longed for. The only one qualified to pay for the sins of the whole world. 
And then he got a drink. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he died. Truly died. They took him to a tomb. Everybody knew where it was. The Jews knew where it was. Romans knew where it was. Disciples knew where it was. Everybody knew where it was. They rolled a stone over the front of it. They set a guard there. But didn't he make some statement like three days later I'm going to walk away from it and destroy this temple and three days later I'll raise it up again? And that's what he did. And the stone was rolled away. And he literally appeared to over 500 people over the next 40 days. He literally rose from the dead. Not his memory, not his teachings, him. The one, the object of the faith. So that's what this little piece, this little cup is about. <clears throat> he gave a great commission to his disciples. <clears throat> and he said, for you, I want you to start in Judea. I want you to go to Samaria. I want you to go to the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. And I want you to teach them. I want you to make disciples and teach them to observe all I commanded you. He gave us a great co-mission. He didn't send us out by ourselves. Because he's omnipresent. He's with us all the time. So here is this little cup that is saying, and after they ascended, the, the angel said, you know, in the same way that the, you've seen the Son of Man, in the same way he's going to come back. So do you believe that? This little cup is about the fact that he came, he did his job, and he's coming back. So let us think about that just a minute. And then we will have a prayer. And I ask Danny to do that after just a minute. And we'll have a prayer and we'll all partake together. Let's pray. <clears throat> he took the cup and he said, This is the new covenant in my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes back. Let's drink. And Father, again, we're so amazed. We're so amazed that you'd have anything to do with us. That your son had come and pay for our sins. And that now we'd be called your sons. What an amazing blessing that is. Let us praise you now and praise you forever. For it's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. The first point, basically the introduction, and it looked at Galatians chapter 6 and the first five verses of Galatians chapter 6. Uh, I've actually talked to people before that have so, been studying the Word for a long time and, and um, brought up that verse and it's like they never heard of it. And yet, it's very important. If a brother's caught in a trespass, you are spiritual. Restore such a one the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. And then we also saw that the book of James had things to say about individual change and repentance. And that gave a series of ten commands that we find quite interesting. And in these ten commands, we get to the last four of them. And they had to do with be miserable, mourn, and weep. Uh, let your laughter be turned to joy, or your laughter be turned into sorrow. And, and I mean, what? Because aren't we as Christians supposed to be stoic? Supposed to not show any emotions? It used to kind of bother me at times that, you know, if, if you lost a loved one, don't cry. 
some people actually thought that because if you cried, you didn't really believe they were going to heaven and all this other stuff. And I'm thinking, that's not biblical. I can go all the way back to Genesis and start proving it's not biblical with Joseph crying over the loss of his father Jacob. And he certainly knew where daddy was going. He knew where he was headed. We also find David spending a lot of time crying. We find uh, crying, in fact, over his sins. Now, a point was made that just because you feel sorry for your sins doesn't mean you're, you're, you're forgiven of them. But what is forgiveness all about? In fact, to the point that don't feel sorry for your sins, because if you do feel sorry for your sins and you probably haven't pro- properly confessed them right, that you need to somehow stuff these feelings, these emotions and all that and never deal with them or process them. Now, over the last 40 years, I've seen a different picture emerge from the Scripture. And if you're going to try and help someone to restore them, and you give them James 4, verses uh, 7 and 8, and you talk to them about humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and He will exalt you at the proper time. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Flee from the devil or resist the devil. He will flee from you. When you start dealing with that, guess what? People are emotional beings. And uh, how did Jesus handle his emotions? Because I just, the more I get to know about the scripture, the less I can see Jesus is a stoic that never laughed. I think he just had a good time with life. He also cried. I know over things like, Lazarus. Oh, Jesus showed up. John 11:35. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? People go, Jesus wept. John 11:35, and there we've got the answer. And now we feel good because we answered the question. Why did he weep? Because he knew he let Lazarus die, <laughs> and he waited three days before he went, and he knew what he was going to do all along. He was going to raise him up. He was weeping over the people who were weeping like those who had no hope over Lazarus. They used to hire professional mourners. Wouldn't that be a fun job? Come out and I'll give you a denarius a day to come out and mourn for my loved one. Is that shallow, phony, hokey, whatever you want to attach to it? God made us emotional creatures. So we need to learn what are good emotions, what are bad emotions, how do, we, how do we deal with them and process them. Whenever we start trying to process such things as anger and we don't know what to do with it, oftentimes anger just builds up on the inside and explodes eventually. That's what happens. Is that the biblical way to, to deal with it? Well, I don't think so. I think the Bible gives us ways to do it. When you start talking about kids and money, you can get people really upset really easy. And you put emotions on top of that because people, we like those, don't we? We've been working our whole life to, to, to be able to feel these emotions, not feel these emotions, hide these emotions, cover these emotions, be hypocritical with our emotions. We've learned our whole life how to cope with emotions, but we're emotional creatures. We also have seen, a lot of us have been taught about a thing called anthropopathisms. And that basically says, it's a theological term, God doesn't have any emotions. 
And yet all through the Bible, hmm, you find God displaying emotion, don't you? I submit that anthropopathism does not make God an emotionless being. If you're talking about an emotionless, an emotionless being, you're talking about Allah in the description of him. From a deterministic standpoint, that's who he is, that's the way he thinks. But he's not real. But that's what they have created about him. Anthropopathism, how about, how about God perfectly displays his emotions all the time? And to say that he can't is us projecting ourselves on him. Because we can't. We oftentimes, with outbursts of anger driving down the street... We see something happen on the news and immediately there's a response that comes out. How do we how do we rightfully process those? But see God, perfect God is is God get mad? Yes. <laughs> it's called the outpouring of the wrath of God. First Thessalonians 1.10, we're going to be saved from the wrath. Okay, wrath is an emotion. It is an anger. It is a slow burning anger. Can we relate to that? Somebody that's maybe mad all the time. A thumos is an anger that is a quick explosive anger. And sometimes a thumos can just happen because you hear something you don't like, see something you don't like, and poof. Next thing you know is an angry response, but an orge can have a slow burning wrath. But then it goes thumos and pops. Now, that's the two different types of anger that we see. But we also see a phrase in Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Hold it a minute. So there's a righteous anger. So we find out about that as Christians. <clears throat> and the next thing you know, all of our anger is righteous. And your anger is unrighteous. <clears throat> It's kind of like the difference between a depression and a recession. Recession is when everybody else is having a rough time. Depression is when you're having a rough time. When we personalize it. It's kind of like the way we, we see things because we're inherently selfish because of our sin nature. But there are different ways to approach emotion. Some are just totally ran by their emotions. Some, some uh, theological or religious movements, if you are, is all based on emotion. I cannot tell you the number of pastors we've run into that were taught, just go pray to the Holy Spirit and get up and preach what you feel. Okay? No, you don't need the Bible. You don't need to study the Bible. The Holy Spirit will give you utterance in the day in which you in which you need to speak that. And as a result, there's some of the weirdest theology you have ever seen that takes place on this planet. How about <clears throat> Stoicism? That basically became, well, I'm not going to show emotions at anything. Is, is that right? How are you going to be angry and not sin? See, you just put off a whole bunch of of exhortations found in scripture because the Lord got mad when he cleaned out and went and cleaned out the temple twice. He was not a happy camper. Whenever he comes to pour out his wrath on the earth, not a happy camper. The difference is, is that he does it perfectly. He does it perfectly. So if we want to learn what's a right emotion and a wrong emotion, we look at how God displays his emotions. 
And toward what? And for how long? And does he offer grace and mercy in the process? That's what we, that's what we look for. So, <clears throat> whenever we, um, do you have an emotional response over betrayal? Some people say, well, you shouldn't have. Well, yeah, we're going to have one. We're made to have them. What about disappointment? Yeah, we get disappointed over some things. Football scores, for one thing. But it's amazing about football because some people get more upset about football than they are the fact people are dying and going to hell without the Lord. That should be what really upsets us. Not whether or not our team stunk up the field and shouldn't have got out of the locker room. See, that's not what it's about. There are things to get really angry over. Satan taking control of governments. That's worthy of anger. Indeed. And so, people are emotional beings. Now, first of all, when we seek to bear one another's burdens, and you get ready to do this, and you decide you're going to say, Lord, here am I, use me, like Isaiah in chapter 6 said, here am I, send me. And you decide, okay, Lord, here am I. Ezekiel 22.30 said he looked for someone to stand in the gap and nobody was there in Israel. And that's why they got sent into uh, Babylon in order to spend that time in captivity. But <clears throat> when we get ready to, to say, hey, Lord, here am I, use me. No telling where you're going to end up and what set of circumstances. And if you do, you're going to find people in emotional conditions. I've been called at 2 o'clock in the morning more than once to come help with a situation. There was a bad situation and it was a situation that the emotions were running at such a high pitch that it was hard to, to, to speak any truth to anybody because they weren't able to hear. And you need to try and be able to back the situation off a little bit. To do that, you need to understand kind of how the emotions work and what, what the objectives are when dealing with emotions. Because obviously in psychology today, they just want you to embrace your emotions and when I, they want you to get over the guilt by saying all these things that you're feeling so bad about, you just need to embrace them. But if they're unrighteous things, you don't need to do that. You can still speak truth to error. We live in a society, although it's certainly not limited to this society, that wants to feel good, even when something legitimately painful happens. Ah, let's see, what happened 2000, September 11, 2001? Legitimately painful, right? April 19, 1995, the Murrah Building bombing that happened. And what's the first things that we start hearing about after such events? We just want things back to normal. Really meaning, I just want to feel good again. Maybe we need to take what we're really feeling and really feel it and then be able to process it and constructively use it. Many people have been seen to take tragedy, loss of a child, loss of a loved one, a death by a certain disease or something like that. And they've taken that tragedy, they've processed it, and they've turned it into good. And that is, that's what we're, we're looking for. How does that go about happening? Every emotion 
can be used to push us to a deeper awareness of our dependency on God. If it's joy, I keep all over the New Testament and going back through it almost all at one time has been so valuable for me because I just hit Philippians. Rejoice, I say always. Chapter 4. And again I will say, rejoice. Sounds like an emotion, doesn't it? I've actually been places, been in churches, and when we sing I'll fly away, I know our background, and so clapping with I'll fly away is hard to do. Because we've all been thought, don't display your emotions like that. Emotionalism. It's not emotionalism. Do you have a joy of the Lord that's there? I have actually heard I'll fly away sang so badly with such a lack of emotion that I wanted to throw up. Because it was in a group of people that didn't like to show their emotions, much less clapping along with the song. They want to do that. I think it was not processing emotions correctly. But everything we run into can push us to a deeper awareness of our dependency on God. It's okay to hurt. And more than that, it's necessary to hurt because it's evidence of life. I start thinking about what, where, where do I go? What, why don't you have a whole lot of verses here? Because they'd be overwhelming. Read the book of Proverbs if you want some verses about emotion and dealing, emotion and dealing with it. And then, oh, for much more fun, read the Psalms. Pick out the Davidic Psalms. Isn't David such a fine guy? Lord, I want you to take all my enemies and squash them like bugs. Kill them all. That's what I want you to do. You find that in the Psalms. And you're going, that doesn't sound very biblical to me. Why was David a man after God's own heart if he was such a mean-spirited man? How do you explain that? What David was was an honest man. That's what he was feeling before God and he presented it to God and it got wrapped up into these Psalms you know what you find in the Psalms David just pouring out all of his emotions to the Lord and then he says but this is the way I need to look at it so he has dealt with his emotions and he has processed his emotions and yeah I hate them all but then he goes back I really wish they get saved really wish they'd find the Lord. I really wish that, that the good things would happen that you have designed for them. Because David knew about the Redeemer. He didn't have all of the revealed information, progressive revelation that we have to look at. But he knew about the Redeemer. And we, we know that because Job lived before he did. In Job 19.25, Job writes, I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last he shall take his stand on the earth. So the whole concept of the Redeemer was well known long before David. Now David is a, uh, yeah, he saw the necessity to do that. Now did it cripple him spiritually? He saw it as an opportunity to get closer to God. Read Psalm 51. What about David and Bathsheba? Boy, you talk about mix-ups. That was something that shouldn't have been done. You know what David should have been doing? Out fighting with the troops. In the spring, 
i.e. the time for war, when people go out and fight with each other, all the armies went except David stayed. Well, that was a mistake. When he was real, when he realized what had happened, you can read about him pouring his life out in front of the Almighty, because it cost him a child. Is what it did, and you can see David's sorrow, tremendous sorrow that is there, and he poured his life out before before the Lord. He confessed his sin. He made the adjustments in his thinking. Now, we must be careful that our immediate response is not to end the pain, but that our immediate response is to draw near to God. That's James 4.8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That should be our immediate response. But where do you think most of the world is going when they face difficult circumstances? Do you think they're going toward ending the pain or drawing near to God? Because if your desire is to end the pain, and I'm not saying don't stop taking aspirin. I'm not saying don't stop taking aspirin or Tylenol or whatever it is. That's not it. But whenever you face some psychological trauma of some kind, and the first desire is to end the pain, sometimes we never process the pain. And it carries on for years. I've had relatives that got mad at each other and didn't get unmad. Until one of them died, went over 50 years, and they didn't, you know, sisters in the same, in the same household wouldn't even talk, communicate, or anything, because one of them got mad over what somebody else did. Huh, that's not properly processing the pain. You might have gotten hurt, but it needed to be processed to get you closer to God. See, if we're going to help other people, we're walking into an emotional minefield at times, and we have to realize it. But don't let it scare you to the point you're not willing to participate. Christians are exhorted throughout Scripture to face all of reality with a trust in Christ. Every part of Scripture, no matter what it is. Did Abraham face any of this? Oh, let's see. Sarah was barren. You find that in Genesis 11 before you ever get to the Abrahamic covenant. And it says, and Abram was married to Sarah, and Sarah was barren. Now, how would you like to be known that way? Because especially in the ancient world, that was not a good thing. Sarah was barren. But you get that comment, oh, hi, by the way, this is my wife, and she's barren. Okay? That's, and in a lot of places in the world, it's still not, not acceptable. But did she face it with a trust in Christ? Did Abraham? Not originally. But you know it was upsetting to them. Because the promise was, you're going to have a child, your seed, and in him all the nations of the earth is going to be blessed. But there's no seed for Abraham. So later on, while they're still carrying these emotions, years later, they come up with this idea, hey, we've got an Egyptian handmaid named Hagar. So Abraham, why don't you go into Hagar? Actually, Abram until chapter 17. Abram, go into Hagar and let's produce a child together. Well, they did. His name was Ishmael. Scripture calls him a wild ass of a man. And that's still causing the Jews problems. Because they did not trust in Christ. 
the same thing happens. When he gives a promise, when he gives a promise, he's going to keep it. They're interchangeable, they're, they're unchangeable things. Where he has interposed, God has interposed with an oath, and when he makes a promise, he's going to keep it. He's going to keep it if he's got to raise you from the dead to keep it. When he gives a promise. What's the source of our emotions? That's something we should ask, i.e., what triggers them? Now, that should be fairly easy to answer. We think everything <laughs> triggers emotion somewhere. But we're going to try to analyze a little bit of this. Not so we can be smarter than everybody, but so maybe we can help some people through some difficult times. What is the source of the emotions? What triggers them? The second thing is what's their usefulness? So what can we learn from them? Is there any usefulness to the emotions that we have? If there is, and we know there is, what can we learn from them? So what triggers the emotions? What can we learn from the emotions? And the last one is how should we handle them? What do we do with them? What happens whenever we get righteously angry at a spouse? What can happen? Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. That says process it quickly. Don't go, don't take it to bed with you at night. What do we do with them? What do we do with these emotions that, that we have? Now what triggers our emotions is the fourth point that we're going to look at in this, in this study. And there are some simplistic theories that offer a quick relief, and they're easy to be found. Now, <clears throat> these are uh, stopgap measures. And by knowing these things, then sometimes this is, this is what is needed to get somebody back on the right track. Because somebody can be in such an emotional state that they're, they're not ready to listen, especially to the doctrine of emotions. They're not ready to go through that. They're not able to handle it. Sometimes people have ended up in institutions, in mental institutions, because they've got so messed up and their emotions are running the show. And, and what, what, has, what is a success in one of those things? To get them to get where they can think clearly again. Okay? And most of them don't do it. How can we drug them up and fix them up? And that's not really the way to do it. How do we process this thing? How do we help somebody so they can think clearly again? Because once they can start to think clearly, you can reason with them. We find police put in bad situations all the time. They're in bad situations because they've, they've got people out there that, that people want to legalize all the drugs that are out there. We got trouble with the ones we've got. But they want to legalize all these things and make it a big so what uh, measure. We, we don't really need to use drugs to try and fix all of our problems that are soul problems. Not a, it's not a long-term solution. Now, <clears throat> there are some some simplistic theories, bad behaviors cause bad emotions. So straighten up. That's what we frequently use on our kids. That's what was used on me. Well, you're feeling bad because you're, you're just uh, wacky. Straighten up. 
Straighten that. Okay, this might work for a period of time, but we need to go a little farther than that. Another thing is bad goals cause bad emotions, so redirect your life. If your goal is to reach a certain thing, you remember that little chart that I asked you to take home and learn about significance and security and goals that are over here and stuff? Now, if we've got a, if the goal in our life and the overriding goal is to do something and we're not able to get there, then we get mad. We get anger, guilt, and fear that comes out of it. And those things put together will, will definitely cause depression. And so how, how do we, what do we do? What, well, first of all, we have to get the right goal set in there. Loving God and one another, and then develop a strategy and try to carry that out in order to do it. So that's that's not all bad, but just to, bad goals cause bad bad emotions. But sometimes people need more explanation than that. Bad thinking causes bad emotions. So think right. One of the models says that bad thoughts lead to bad emotions, lead to bad actions, and that you. If you want to change your thoughts, you have to start doing right actions, which will lead to right emotions, which will lead to right thinking. Now, those things go together. Thinking, emotions, and actions go together if we want to fix ourselves and fix other people. And the last one is that bad faith causes bad emotions, so get spiritual. Okay? If you're believing in the wrong thing, true. Uh, causes bad emotions. You, I, I think about this thing called prosperity theology, <clears throat> and when we go overseas, it um, uh, we run into it all the time. People think that they can just name it and claim it, and they can create their own reality, and they can get God to do their own bidding. Now, some people think, well, if I just have enough faith, then God is going to make this happen. If I just have enough faith that I'm going to get well, then God is going to make this happen. If I just have enough faith that I'm going to get rich, then God will make this happen. And what happens when you don't get well? Then guilt sets in, right? Because you don't feel like you've got enough faith. Because you've been told you didn't have enough faith. If you had enough faith, then you would get well. Sometimes it's not God's will. Because it's not God's will for all of us to always get well or nobody would die. Okay? That's easily dealt with. Okay? But it is... It is um, this idea that we can make and generate and create our own reality because we're all little gods. But people get mad because, hey, I've given so much to the Lord and he hadn't given me anything back. Or he only gave me 30-fold and I was planning on 60-fold that he gave back. People can get mad for all the wrong the wrong reasons and it's because they've got they've got their faith. Faith is not about what I can make myself believe. That's a devil at work. Faith is about who or what I believe in. Now, do I believe that God is omniscient and knows all things and has not forgotten me? Yeah. Do I believe that he wants good for me? Yeah. Well, he take this set of circumstances, use my 
emotions that are so terrible and can he turn it into good? And the answer is absolutely he can do that. Now, the strength of the urge to keep things simple partly reflects our abhorrence of confusion. 1 Corinthians 14.40, it's not on there because we don't like confusion. You know, I, I get upset at my garage. I've talked to you about my garage on multiple occasions. Because I walk out into my garage and I get up because I went for a tool that was one place the night before and it's not there the next morning. Okay? All right. What's the problem? I don't like the confusion. And I actually paid my son-in-law to organize the garage. And he did an excellent job. And sometimes I'm looking for things that have already been labeled and marked and put in their appropriate drawer. And I'm not looking for them in the appropriate drawer. But we absolutely don't like confusion. Things we don't understand damage our pride. Sometimes we get asked questions we don't have an answer to. We come up, make up one on the spot. Like Larry the Cable Guy said, 42.7% of of all uh, surveys are made up on the spot, which uh, seems normal. What happens is it puts us in touch with our vulnerability. If we don't have an answer and we're in a confusion, then we go, I'm vulnerable. Maybe somebody knows more than me. And the next thing you know, we're trying to protect that. Instead of saying, oh, really? Uh, can you explain that to me? And having the humility to say, I just don't understand that position. As a result, we sometimes try to solve our emotional problems in a way that does not require the passionate pursuit of the Almighty. If we're having problems with our emotions, controlling them, properly expressing them, whatever we do. We need a stronger pursuit of the Almighty God. Because we have a sin nature that's got its own mind. And that sin nature has worked years developing those response mechanisms. And it will take, as we all should know, the power of the Almighty to stop some of this stuff. But yet that's what we're called to do. There are two categories of emotions. There are pleasant and unpleasant emotions. And, you know, that's like ice cream is frequently seen as a pleasant emotion. It can generate a pleasant emotion. I think chocolate has got its own emotional properties that that go with it. Uh, Unpleasant emotions, things that we just don't like. Normal, reactive, responsive stuff. And there are constructive and destructive emotions. And a lot of that comes about as to how do we read things that are going on. Now, we're going to explore these next week as we take a look. But there are basically two categories of emotions. Because some things that we try to make so complex are really pretty simple. And if we can identify the simple, then we can deal with the more detailed information that comes along. So, let us... Close with prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your mercy, your love, your grace. We thank you again for your word. And Father, thank you for giving us the emotions that we have. And Father, we know we don't express them properly or correctly um, much of the time.
But yet, Father, what we want to do is express them and think in such a way that honors you. We're told of Philippians 2.5 to think like our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that that's where our thoughts will head. And whenever we're not thinking like he would think, that Father, that the Holy Spirit would get our attention so that we might make the necessary adjustments. Father, this week we look forward to the tests and opportunities that you're going to bring our way because we know they're designed for our benefit. So let us always give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.